Take your copy of God's Word, turn to John chapter 2. Remind you, this is God's Word. It was written a long time ago, but it was written with you in mind. That's the beauty of having both a human and a divine author. That when John wrote this, he wasn't thinking about you, but the Holy Spirit was. It was written that you might be edified and built up. For some of you, this might be a fairly common passage. I would encourage you to, even as it is read, ask the Lord to give you fresh ears to hear his word. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let us ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, we do pray that you would feed us yet again. Feed us the bread of life. Feed us King Jesus, even as we hear the scriptures read and proclaimed. Lord, we do ask that we might hear not a man speaking up front, but that we might hear from heaven. We do pray in Jesus' name, amen. I love Bible texts that make us squirm. (laughs) Those ones that, if we're honest, like if we actually engage it, if we actually listen to what the text says, make us a little bit uncomfortable. We did some of those in Sunday school, didn't we? I love that. Where It's one of those where it forces me to kind of rack my brain to understand what is God saying? What does God mean? And then will I submit before Him? What is God saying? What does God mean? And will I submit before Him? This chapter, this passage, this portion is fantastic for that same thing. What is God saying? What does God mean? Will I submit before Him? It's fun watching in preparation as I'm a theological nerd reading all the commentaries and how many people squirm to try to make the text say something. It doesn't. They try to make it about 
the wrong things when John himself tells us, why is this in the scriptures? Why is this passage included? Why do we have John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12? Well, it tells us in verse 11. This, this was the first of his signs. Jesus did this at Cana in Galilee. It actually happened, and in doing so, he manifested, he showcased, he demonstrated, he exhibited his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's interesting that John includes this at the end because this verse really kind of frames the entire discussion. It frames the entire story. It frames all that takes place because it sets the stage for how to understand it. This miracle at Cana, the the water into wine is at its core one specific thing. It is a demonstration of King Jesus and His power. This miracle is at its core about Christ. It's about showcasing Christ. It's about demonstrating Christ. It's about pointing me to Christ. It's about calling us all to believe in Christ. This is absolutely about Christ. This isn't a miracle about you. I hate to break it to you. You're not the center of this text. In fact, actually, you're not in this text. It gives us principles for us to understand, but the story isn't told about you. In fact, actually, it's really interesting. The story's not even really told about anybody because if we had to identify the main characters, let's, let's think about who we have in the text. Well, we have Jesus. There's a name used there. And actually, that's it. It's the only name we actually have in the entire section. John tells the story in such a way that the other players are kind of most likely identified, but in such a way that it doesn't call any attention to them. Jesus is the center of the show. Of course, he has to interact with his mother, but we'll talk about that in a moment. He doesn't even tell us who the bride and groom are. Doesn't tell us why he's in Cana. It's probably most likely Nathaniel, whom he just picked up in the previous section, is actually from Cana. It's probably one of his friends or buddies that's getting married, and everybody knows everybody there. He doesn't tell us. We don't know. The whole thing, all of it points to Jesus is to showcase who Jesus is to the people of God. So, in that kind of perspective, what does this story, this true story, this real historical event, what does it teach us about Christ? Well, first principle that I want you to see, it's in the text. Christ is the Lord of joy. Christ is the Lord of joy. And this is fun to think about. King Jesus has uh, just begun his ministry. And uh, the way that the world worked at this point in history is uh, men lived a public life and women lived a private life. Uh, Women were occupied with the home and with the nursery. Men were occupied with the profession and with the business. So the men lived exterior to the home. Women lived interior to the home. And the worlds didn't always mix. It's actually going to be significant as to why a wedding is the first one. It's because one of the few places where those worlds intersect and everyone's in the same location. But Jesus, living in the world outside, living in the exterior world, has not yet really begun his ministry. 
He's begun, uh, begun calling disciples to himself, calling men to come and follow him. He's begun evangelizing them and telling them that he is the Messiah, but his public ministry has not yet gotten off the ground. And I think it's interesting that to begin that we actually only know that there are only a handful of people that are explicitly listed in this as having been invited to the wedding. Jesus and his disciples. The Lord Jesus begins his ministry. He gets his public ministry just started. He calls his disciples. And the moment he calls his disciples, he gets invited to a wedding. He gets invited to a party. And it's interesting as you continue in his ministry. Everywhere he goes, he's constantly invited to parties. And if we're going to be honest, he's constantly invited to the kind of parties that I don't really want to go to. I mean, he's invited to the parties that are filled with prostitutes and tax collectors, which would have been the scum of the earth. He's constantly invited to the kind of parties that most of us would never have even considered. In fact, actually, let's think about what does a wedding look like in this time? Just to just kind of gain a little bit of historical perspective. A wedding is one of those few events in the ancient Near East where uh, the interior life of uh, women would meet with the exterior life of men. And though they didn't mingle that often together, a wedding was one of those times. You remember, even in the church, when they worshipped at this point in history, women and men worshipped separately in the temple. I mean, they had different rooms to worship in. And a wedding would have been one of the few times where they blended together. It would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of a week long. It would have happened at the new couple's house. And the groom would have been responsible for everything. A little different than today. Right? The groom would have been responsible for all the food. And the wine would have been unbelievably significant in the ancient Near East. For a Jew, the wine would have symbolized joy and blessing. It's all throughout the Old Testament. You have it used in a number of places. The, the blessing that's given to Judah is that he will be so, so blessed he'll have to wash his clothes in wine. It's kind of like he'll have a money tree that grows so much money he can't mow his lawn. It's just, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. There's, just, there's money falling out of the sky. It's blessing will flow everywhere. The Psalms are clear that wine makes the heart glad. The idea of blessing and joy, and it would have been the groom's responsibility. And it would have been a spectacular feast that would have been filled with wine that would have lasted for a week. Pause and just reflect on that for a moment. I mean, we, we make a big deal out of weddings. I mean, they're a big deal. Right? She could tell us it's a big deal to do a wedding. But can you imagine planning a reception for a week? Actually, better yet, could you imagine Jeremiah planning a reception for a week? <laughs> In fact, we probably would have a similar story, wouldn't we? We're out of food. We don't know what to do, right? You expect it. It makes sense. <laughs> but it's interesting that at the very beginning, in a moment in the ancient Near East, in this world, in this culture, that would have been one of the most joyful moments in the entire culture, Jesus is immediately brought into, and he's right at home. It's like he belongs there. And I think this is an important point, particularly for those of the Reformed tradition to get, because I would suggest that maybe many of us, our kind of mental portrait of the personality of Jesus is fairly sour and grumpy. He's maybe a little bit uptight. He's uncomfortable and rigid. He's judgmental and just 
taxing to be around. And the problem is that that's not at all what the portrait of the scriptures are. That's a portrait of what I am. That's a portrait of me. That's not a portrait of Christ because the portrait that we have of Christ is a man who is instantly invited to all the best parties and he gets there and he behaves like he belongs. Now, does that mean that he's going around, you know, getting plastered and drinking too much? No, of course not. He's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of holiness. He's the Lord of righteousness. But he is the Lord of joy. He didn't shun places where people were having a good time. That's an incredible point to understand about the Lord of life. He didn't shun places where people are having a good time. He would have been right at home at flocks this afternoon, enjoying life with the people of God. This is who our Savior is. He is the Lord of joy. Now, I could continue for this point and just have it be the only point of the sermon, but I want to highlight a couple of things very quickly as we go. He's a Lord of joy. And his joy, his, his lordship, it's connected to a different and higher authority. His joy, his, he's connected to a different, a higher authority. So this Lord of joy is instantly invited into this wedding feast and you kind of have this tender moment that takes place between mom and son. It most likely happened where the women were occupying the kitchen and the men were occupying the living room. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm saying that's the way it was. And you probably have this kind of tender moment where mom and son kind of run into each other in one of the hallways in between. And she kind of corners them and is like, oh, by the way, they're out of wine. That's not the kind of like request that we might have at a party today where you're like, oh, we're out of ice. If the wife comes to the husband and says, we're out of ice, what does that mean? Translate. It means go get some ice out of, you know, go hop in your car, drive to the gas station, bring her back ice. (laughs) This is not a command that translates that way because there is no grocery store to go to. You can't just run down the street and purchase wine. You made your wine and it was made because your grapes fermented. You didn't have proper refrigeration. She's implying explicitly here that she wants him to do something, and it's, I firmly believe, something spectacular. Remember, this is the woman who's raised this man and never watched him sin. This is the woman who watched her 12-year-old have the entirety of the Old Testament most likely memorized by the time he was 12 because he read it all of the time, not because he's divine, because he worked that hard at it. She, she knows he's different. She knows he's unique. She's asking him to do something spectacular, and his response is shocking. <laughs> Love it. Woman! It's not really as rude as it sounds in English. Uh, in English, if, you know... I address somebody as woman, it would not go well. It probably translates a little bit more like lady, but it is significant that it's not mom. That word is there. It could be used. He had that at his availability. He could have said, mom, what do you want me to do? All right. How many times have any young son said that to mom? Mom, what do you want me to do? What do you want from me, mom? He doesn't say that. Instead, he intentionally uses a word that distanced him from her. This is significant. He says, woman. And he intentionally, there is a range that is placed there. And then that next phrase in the actual literal Greek is, what to me and to thee? Put kind of, what is there between us? What connection is there between you and me? 
And I can pretty much guarantee you, if I ever spoke to my mom with woman, what connection do I have with you? It would not have ended well. It would have most likely ended with some form of I brought you into this world. I can, and you know, the threat that follows from that. He, he explicitly is not doing that. He's not being disrespectful to her, but he is, however, explicitly distancing himself from her. He, she's not his mom right now. And moms, that would be an unbelievably difficult thing to hear, wouldn't it? To hear that child that you raised that you knew was kind of strange from that kind of whole virgin birth thing. It would have been a little odd. The whole angels, that would have been a little strange. But for him to say, oh, by the way, at this moment, you're not my mom. There's no connection between us. We're not family. I don't belong to you anymore. And that's the key idea in this whole thing is I don't belong to you. And he follows it up with a clarification. Why? Because my hour has not yet come. You don't get to determine my ministry. My ministry is set by a higher power. What what is he doing is he's clarifying his parentage for his mom. (laughs) You're You're not my mom anymore. I belong to my father. Not Joseph, my father, my heavenly father. He, he's clarifying the authority set that he's under. He respects her. He honors her. He is not nearly as rude as it comes across in English and in the South. I mean, this is like wash your mouth out with soap kind of language in here. That's not what he's using. But he is clearly putting her in her place that she is no longer an authority figure in his life. She's gone. She's going to show up later and she's going to say that he's insane and try to take him home. And he's going to be even more scathing at that moment. But it's abundantly clear to her. He makes it just shockingly obvious. My authority structure no longer involves you. I hear from heaven itself. It's beautiful, actually, when you think about it, is that he's waiting for his father's leading, not his mother's leading. And that is wonderfully comforting because Mary is sinful just like you and me. Her vision is limited just like you and me. She doesn't understand the world just like you and me. She is frail. Like I said, we find out later that she thinks he's insane and tries to bring him home. She's broken just like you and me. He's not leaning upon her. He's leaning upon the Father who's not any of those things. Isaiah 55 tells us that his ways aren't our ways. His word accomplishes his purposes. No matter what those purposes are, he understands life in a way that we don't. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the unseen. He is the mighty and powerful God. Christ is under a different and higher authority. And he gives the blessings that are in accord to that authority. That's the third thing we're going to see. Christ is the Lord of joy. He is under a higher authority. He gives his blessings according to that authority. If Mary had her way, what would Jesus have done? Probably something spectacular, but it would have remedied the situation. We're out of wine, go fix it. We're out of ice, go buy a bag of ice. That's so (laughs) small-minded. Jesus doesn't really do that. And this is, again, where it kind of challenges our understanding of who Jesus is and how we think about him. And John records all of the details to make sure we don't miss any of them. 
Mary, trusting in Christ, says, do whatever he tells you to do. And he then says, all right, no, by the way, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. They're stone, so they weren't under the same mold and purity requirements. Every Jew would have known exactly what these were. You kept them in your house so that you were able to have ceremonially clean stuff all of the time. They're big. They're heavy. I mean, we kind of translate today to like a 50-gallon drum, except maybe a little bit half that size. There are six of them, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, I'm not the most brilliant mathematician, but I think I can add these with a calculator. You have six jars that each holds 20 to 30 gallons of water that the Lord Jesus has says, fill all the way up to the brim. They fill it up to the brim, and then he immediately has them ladle it out. And what was water when they poured it in is not water when it comes out. And you're like, well, that's amazing. And then it's good wine, and that's amazing. And then you have to kind of go, wait, wait, wait we got to pause, actually. Again, do the math on this one. Six jars, between 20 and 30 gallons each. There are five bottles of wine per gallon, which he means he made between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. 600 and 900 bottles of wine. And let's pick, say it's really, really good wine. Let's pick a dollar amount. Let's say $40 per bottle, which is, if you go to Harris Teeter Publix, that's a reasonable amount for a nice bottle of wine. That puts this as a gift between twenty-four dollars and $36,000 worth of wine. Go get a bag of ice. Come home with a Mercedes. I mean, it, 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 what he gives her is it, it's shocking in the breadth and the quality and the size and the magnificence of this gift to his mother and a gift to the bride and groom. It's jaw-dropping how much he provides for them. I mean, think about it. You're at a party that's supposed to last a week long, and suddenly here's 800 bottles of wine added on top of it. Understand, that that doesn't fit in our car. Like, you would need multiple trucks to carry that. It's so much of a gift. It would have lasted them for a very long time. He's giving his blessings connected to his higher authority and not his earthly authority. This is significant to understand that, yes, he is fully human, but he is also fully divine, and his gifts can match both his divinity and his humanity. I have to go. Next, and very quickly, he's the king over matter. I love watching this one. Watching, talk about passages that make people squirm to, to try to see how folks weasel out of what the text says. They poured water in and they pulled wine out. Somehow, Jesus did a miracle that changed the molecular structure of that. And not only did he change the molecular structure of it, but he changed it amazingly. So that even when they bring it to the feast master, who would be like a wedding planner today, and bring it to the wedding planner, the wedding planner's like, what are you doing? This stuff is amazing. Normally you serve the good stuff first, so that when people's taste buds are kind of numb and they don't really taste stuff, they're like that, that you know, flavor, um, you know, it gets all boring and mushy. Then you serve the bad stuff and they can't tell the difference. You're bringing the really good stuff out now. Why would you do that? It's fun to see how uh, so much in the church, they can't handle this idea that, one, that Jesus did a miracle. Explicitly, he changed water into wine. And it was actually wine. Alcoholic wine. 
seriously alcoholic wine. That would be the good stuff that, that by making that note would have connotated to the Jews, all of them reading, this would have been very highly alcoholic wine. It's not like he's bringing out, you know, it's been watered down 18 times over. No, this is the good stuff. He's giving a great and mighty gift. He's the king over matter. It's showcasing that he is the Lord over all physical things. Very quickly, I'm late. I talk too much during officers, but I need to kind of wrap it with this. What John is pointing us to, to show in this first and significant sign, is that it shows us who Jesus is in the very miracle that he does. It shows us that he's king over matter. It shows that he is God's king. It shows that he is the Lord of joy. He is the Lord of superior joy. And the the one kind of brief application I would make is this. We live in a world in which people are taking all of the things mentioned in this story and trying to replicate false joy. Parties, relationships, social significance, drugs and alcohol abuse, pick whichever substance abuse you want. All of those various things are being used today in our current culture to try to manufacture and replicate joy. And what John is holding for us here in the Holy Spirit is to say, look, there is only one who is joy. You want to find real and lasting and genuine joy. It can only be found in Christ. Now, for some of you, you hear that and you go, well, obviously, duh, I get that. And some of you, you're filled with joy and you're like, thank you for preaching this sermon. I'm encouraged because I'm filled with joy already. But there, I know just sheer statistics, numbers in the room. There are some people in here that as I talk, I have no concept of what joy looks like. I don't know what that means. I know what it means to try to get quiet from the voices in my head. I know what it means to try to make myself feel good for a moment. I have no concept of what joy actually means. And that's where the challenge comes. Because we like to reduce Jesus into a manageable God. Into someone that's just like me, but a little bit better. And we forget he's the Lord of joy. And when we don't have joy, it it shows a problem in our relationship. It shows a misunderstanding in who we are in his presence. It may even show that we don't know him. Because he is the Lord of life. He's the Lord of joy. And where he goes, joy follows. It's actually going to be one of the great themes that we follow throughout the gospel. Everywhere that Jesus goes, joy follows. And suffering. Hand in hand. May it be that we too as his people find joy in him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that King Jesus is the Lord of joy. We do ask for those that do not know joy or do not know him, that you might send the hounds of heaven to haunt in that brokenness, in that sorrow, in that sadness, in that manufactured false attempts that we might find joy in Jesus and Jesus alone. In whose name we pray, amen.